What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you another look at what's going on in pop culture this week. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my co-host, who likes his coffee like he likes his men, full of soy and sweet enough to not really, uh, uh, I forgot the line. Honestly. Not offend anyone or something? Yeah, not offend anyone. Uh, Dave Martinson, Dave, how you doing, man? And Pat, did you know Central Park is just SeaWorld for trees? Yeah, oh, I, I learned that this week. Uh, the, the 1975 Thespians uh, of Music, I guess. That's my SeaWorld comparison to them. Just uh, enlightening me with their very strange observations on being funny <laughs> in a foreign language, which we're going to be talking about this week with a few other albums and uh, a couple of movies, as well as some big TV shows that wrapped up this week. But Dave, before we before we start, just wanted to check in with you. You know, we're starting to get into like kind of into movie awards season. We're starting to kind of move towards the end of the year. Where are you at with just the year in general in terms of like music and pop culture? You feel like this is a good year, middling year? Yeah, I've seen less movies than I normally would at this point in the year. And there are plenty of things to come, but I've been like kind of counting up my list and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to come in a little low on the the total this year you know um a lot of big people dropped albums though you know especially if you go back a few months into last year i mean it's hard to complain with adele drake kendrick beyonce this friday taylor swift and rihanna doing the super bowl and maybe making an album like you know we've done worse i don't know i feel pretty good tv's been hot as usual especially in the beginning of the year that's the thing is we're gonna be talking about a huge TV show today, and I was just thinking how like TV <clears throat> feels like it's as strong as ever. Maybe even this is a stronger year with the Rings of Power and Hot D just competing for viewers at the same time. But for me, movies and music feel a little low. You know, you mentioned like Kendrick dropping an album, um, Drake dropping an album, Kanye dropped an album, and they all kind of oh, flopped, yeah, right? <laughs> you know, and so like these people who usually and not not like not that Kendrick's album is bad. We talked about that in our Kendrick ranking, so go check that out. It's uh, youtubecom slash pod. But it's like underwhelming, I guess. Like Adele, you're right. Adele and Beyonce totally delivered on what we wanted, but it. I don't know if I have like one album that I'm like my definite number one of the year at this point. Kind of surprising. Yeah, it's kind of like Beyonce by default. Definitely the most yeah. impressed I've been, Rosalia, you know. But yeah, yeah. No, I think like making a songs list is going to be harder than normal. I feel like. Um, I agree. It's fun though. It's fun when it takes a little more work, get a little more spicy with the spicy. listicles, you know. Well, Dave, do you think any of uh, Kenny Mason's songs from Ruffs, his newest album, are going to make it to your songs of the year list? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily rule it out. I, I I did quite enjoy Kenny's new work, Ruffs. I think he's just a very uh, intriguing artist, and he has been since we talked about him last year, about a year and a half ago. A really genuine, convincing genre blend of hip-hop and rock music. Uh, I think he's very credible and does it really well, and I liked Ruffs quite a bit. This album, actually, album, mixtape, whatever it is, I don't fucking know, this actually came out on September 28th, completely missed me until Pitchfork reviewed it last Friday. I was like, how did I miss this? Because I really liked Angelic Hoodrat Superstar last year. 
And now he's actually signed to a major. He's on RCA Records. And yet I feel like this got no damn promo, which I think is <laughs> a shame because he is doing this uh, the be- like the best among the best when it comes to something that's a bit more popular nowadays, which is bringing other genres into hip hop. But he he's doing it very well, and he definitely deserves to keep rising because I think this is another great example of his talents. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry, Angelic Hood rap really I think um, stood out as you know uh, an enunciation of Kenny as this voice who feels very familiar but also kind of stands apart from his peers. You know, when I, when I hear him, it's hard not to think of like Denzel Curry, you know, as someone that is kind of in like the same lane sort of Denzel has a little bit more intensity, I think to his songs, but like that, like rap rock kind of blend that uh, together and on uh, roughs, I feel like Kenny kind of just continues to refine his sound and his work. Um, it, it's funny. I feel like a lot of the time, I'm really taken by the beginning of albums. And by the end, I feel like things kind of uh, peter out for me, but I actually found the second half of this album to be really, really strong and kind of grabbed me even more than the first half. And I think that's because I, I think the beginning I felt was a bit more like, I don't want to say like traditional hip hop, but more so just like hip hop rap. But then the second half, you get a little bit more of the, the rock parts into it. And I think he actually does pretty well when he's doing some singing, not like a, voice that'll blow you away but some of his melody is just really impressive for someone so young so uh i really liked this what were the songs or parts of the album that stood out to you yeah well i think the reason he's so convincing at this is because he can have like these really cool moments like out of nowhere on his songs where there's like these specific vocal inflections or he'll just debut a completely new flow in verse two and you know it'll be like super guitar heavy all of a sudden like he really meshes all this quite well but i think him as a performer uh is also just so varied like when he raps he often reminds me of someone like jid Uh, and of Mm. course he was on jid's album with dance now one of my favorite songs off the forever story but on a song like halos track two it's like that flow reminds me of jid a lot but not too long after that you have a song like double up which is much more melodic and i feel like his performance on those verses is just really impressive. A song like Dip, I think the same thing, his performance, you know. I just really like how he modulates his voice and kind of switches stuff up and kind of brings a more like punk or emo-y vibe to his performing, you know. And when he does just do more traditional hip-hop, it's also really good because he's just going to like spit, you know, again, kind of like a jid. So um, in that beginning run too, you have Minute Forever where the guitar is like super noticeable. But then at the back half, you know, I think there's a lot of cool songs too. Like you said, you were definitely more struck with that one. Um, you know, I think songs like Javenci uh, and uh, yeah. Shell stood out to me. Like, yeah, I, I just really enjoy, I think, the kind of unexpectedness you get from like the listening experience with his work. Yeah. And, you know, uh, like for me the album really uh, the, the beginning i agree there's some good parts i don't want, want to knock like the beginning wasn't good but i think second half when we get to nosedive with gene dawson yeah. that's that beginning is so like rock feeling like you're about to like go to like a completely metal show and then he just starts completely flowing but he's changing it up as he goes along he's just bringing so much energy to it and he just completely then moves into this like 
sing-songiness, this auto-tune sing-songiness in the second half that really like works for the song and kind of brings this like uh, different feel to the ending. And it just like really impressed me. Um, and I, I think like, as you go through here, like you have a song like that and you're like, he's probably just going to hit the second half and just kind of go all metal. But then the next track, three, 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 Adam is like just this like vibey, but still like kind of metal sounding song, but he just flows over this. So like, well, and like brings this different energy. I'm like, he's really switching it up. I agree. I think like, I think his ability to change his voice similar to like, you know, you mentioned Jid. I think he does a really good job. Kendrick, someone else we've talked about this with, really adds this element of like not needing a lot of features on this, and you only get three throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of makes the album feel unexpected at times, which I think creates this, um, I don't know, sense of uh, optimism that you're, we're going to get some really like cool projects out of him in the future and get even more interesting stuff. So, did you have like one song that you say like is the song from this? Yeah, that's tough, right? Because there's so many different things to gravitate towards. Uh, hmm. I would say my favorite thing, I just really love him on Dip. I think he sounds really good, but there's so many good choices. I mean, you mentioned Nosedive with Gene Dawson. Well, I like that one quite a bit. And Gene Dawson actually just had an album come out like two weeks ago. He's a very similar artist if you're into this sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I think there's there's many candidates for favorite song, yeah. which is awesome. Definitely. Um, Kenny. I think a, a artist that's definitely rising in terms of our, our eyes. I think other people are seeing it the same way. So we actually have a data point because on our review in April, 2021, he only had 662,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. And now a year and a half later, it's at 2.8 million. So he is getting more popular. Good for him. He is now on the major. You'd hope that would continue. I hope so. He's a definitely a really interesting artist. I think we're going to move on, but if people want to listen to Kenny Mason as well as the other tracks we like from this year, go to uh, YouTube. No, go to Spotify and search Nostalgia Best of 2022, where we're updating the playlist every week with the songs we like. Are we going to be putting many little baby songs off of It's Only Me on there? Because uh, <laughs> listening to Ruffs and It's Only Me back to back was like night and day for me, I'd say. <laughs> Yeah, man. I'm I'm not sure because uh, <laughs> little baby, kind of a victory lap type album. At least that's kind of the vibe he gives off as the performer on this. And this is expected to sell two hundred eight thousand first week. Little baby is a massive artist at this point. Uh, probably the second biggest Atlanta artist right now after Future. Like he is at the top and kind of surprisingly at least surprisingly when it happened, he has surpassed Migos as the number one artist on quality control. He's definitely bigger than hotter than those guys these days. Um, But this is actually his first solo album since the breakthrough one in 2020. Um, uh, My turn, which of course really exploded and stood on the charts forever. Then had that deluxe that both was a complete streaming, juicing the streams grab, but also had, the best songs on it like we paid like it, it has been quite interesting to watch like this little baby rise and now we're at the point where it's like all right well are the records here because little baby has a lot of popular songs a lot of really good songs and has definitely impressed me uh, in the time since i first heard him you know in like 2017 2018 time and now it's like huh well what, what's next 
for little baby because he's at the top. He's super successful. What is there left to achieve? And it, it didn't, it didn't come across to me like he had any grander ambition on it's only me 23 song 65 minute album it just kind of felt like a lot of what little baby's up to but he just seemed not as um finely tuned not as invested in in the work this time around there's moments for sure because i think his natural talent can just kind of ooze out of songs but for like little baby is like at the top let me maintain my status album why are the beats so bland and cheap sounding <laughs> like this is such a polar opposite of like the Freddie Gibbs album, which is Scott, which was so lush and loaded with A-list producers. There are big name producers on this little baby album, but these beats suck. And <laughs> I think that's just a huge demerit because also little baby seems a little uninterested at times. And if the beats aren't helping you out either, like there's just a lot of stinkers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I already wasn't really like a huge fan of little baby. So I guess I'll like caveat with like, I I wasn't going into this with a lot of expectation. Um, But I I did just feel like the album felt very similar track to track. It felt fairly low energy. Um, And I gotta be honest, like I don't really like his voice already and he doesn't do much here to like, like impress me outside of you know just being like a competent rapper and i get that he's huge like and people love him and maybe it's just like a a taste thing for me but i just found this to be quite a slog um it's interesting to like be looking through the track list here and seeing some of the collaborators uh ellie golding uh on in a minute he's got oh yeah that's a sample of course the drake pound cape sample all over again Yep, and he like samples Ryan Adams a few songs later on "Cost to Be Alive." It's like <laughs> he's he's like got some interesting thi- like things here that I'm like, huh? Like he's pulling from some inspiration that I wouldn't expect, but I don't feel like anything comes across here where I'm like, man, really inspired work on this. Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing too. Like Little Baby's like biggest fans, and like if you um a, a new book just came out this week, Rap Capital by Joe Coscarelli at the New York Times. It's about like the rise of Atlanta rap. And Little Baby's a huge part of this book, which I'm eager to read. People like like Joe, people that are huge fans of Little Baby, like genuinely, like critically, like huge fans of his, would speak to like his vocal talent and how he can kind of like enunciate words in a certain way. And he's he can kind of uniquely communicate um, kind of like witty like observations in his rapping style and like i've tried to listen for it and i can hear it sometimes where it's like yeah there's a lot more under the hood with like his his rapping ability than your average like atlanta trap star i agree with that but i just think on this record it just felt a lot more low effort than and i think that's another piece too it's like his albums have always and mixtapes have always been bloated but there's been like the brilliance tucked away right and I think this time it's still really bloated and there's just like less examples of his like great talent. And therefore there's a lot less to recommend as a result. So I think for me, m- my favorite, my favorite thing about it was probably danger, you know, just, just one of the random songs. There are many, but danger. <laughs> I think he had one of, one of like a, I think a textbook, like little baby, good line where he's like PTSD. I ain't sleep. So I don't got dreams. Like, you know what? That's like, the type of like street pain shit that he made his name on that is like 
great lyrics from Little Baby. And I think the last song, the close of Russian Roulette, him talking about trying to like slow his life down after finding all the success. I was like, yeah, that, that sounds great. But so many of these other tracks are just so paint by numbers. And not that he can't do cliche, by all means do it, but he's just not doing it that well. And therefore it's, it's, it's hard to recommend. Um, you know, I think for fans of him though, this isn't going to deter them. Like, this is kind of just what he does. And <clears throat> I, I don't think this is probably going to be any of their favorite albums, but uh I don't think this is going to be like the best thing he ever makes either. So I, yeah, I think this is just kind of like a throwaway almost for him. Right. (laughs) I agree. Better days to come. There was a, actually a quite funny line to me, which was towards the beginning on California breeze where one of his bars is number one on YouTube. I'm like, actually, no, you are not number one on YouTube. NBA (laughs) young boys, number one on YouTube. You are number two usually on YouTube. My guy. I actually had the, I had the same thought when he said that. I was like, "Eh, I don't know if that's, that's accurate. Yeah, God. Young Boy still does like 50 million on YouTube every single week. The dude's insane. All those little uh, kids who don't have money for streaming services. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, maybe we'll add a track from him to our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist. Let, let's keep it moving to an artist who I found their, their work a bit more interesting, um, even if uh, them as a personality, I find quite... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Controversial to say the least. Quite. What album? What an album rollout! What promo? You couldn't draw it up any better than MIA has this time around. Yeah, I mean, so MIA, right? Like a a very inventive artist, really blew up in the late two thousands. Paper planes, maybe one of the top ten songs of the two thousands. You know, a, a complete banger, but. And people really ride for a few of her albums, right? Um, Hala, Arular, probably the big hits. Aim, her most recent one before Mata, the one that was released this past Friday. Um, Probably her least successful to date and took some time off from releasing albums. Was kind of on every three-year run until 2016. Now, six years later, we get Mata. Mm. And, I, you know, I just feel like there's a lack of well lack of cohesion on the record i still think there's some really interesting stuff but just at times like fell a bit flat for me and i think the the best like example is ktp for this right which is Keep like yeah is basically i mean it, it sounds like maps the the song maps uh from is it the AAIs, i think yeah no no <laughs> no no not maroon five um maps way out they don't love you like i love you is the song i'm thinking of but yeah. it, it basically is paper planes right like but just like dulled down like kind of take, yeah you got background vocals again the vibe is similar yeah and it and it just feels like like that's kind of what we got in this album like like mid-tier mia stuff right i don't know she doesn't sound on her a game when it came to like the performance or the lyrical side of things which is, oh no, <laughs> you know, I guess not surprising. Like she is 47. She has been around a long time and has taken a long time off. And not, not that she has necessarily been out of the public eye. Again, she is uh, oh, oh, keen to speak her mind on many an issue and topic. And you can look into that if you're interested. But it just doesn't seem like that's actually in the music. 
it's almost like the the music, the lyrics are almost more broader and uh, surface level. And maybe that's a good thing, given the type of opinions she's been sharing lately. Maybe it's better to be more uh, agreeable <laughs> with the music. I don't know. But her opinions just, certainly aren't very like well-researched or deep. So it's not surprising that the no. lyrics so, are... If you're not getting that, then like I guess you really want like the the production to wow you because her first two albums, you know, especially at that time, you know, her kind of coming into like the realm of early Diplo and bringing, uh, really bringing to mainstream like this South Asian like Tamil influenced sounds into music production and like making these honestly really unique iconoclastic dance tracks. And we mentioned the Santa Gold album a few weeks back. I think of her in a very similar way. They're about the same age. They came up around the same time. And, you know, in, in the interim, like since early MIA to now, like music has, has, has moved forward. And there are people who've picked up this mantle from MIA. I think in some reviews, I saw Rosalia mentioned often and, mm. or even someone on the other end, like hundred Gex. like you are getting these kind of like ideas with production uh, elsewhere now and MIA just doesn't really sound like as up to the challenge to like keep going in the direction mm. that she helped uh, found if that makes sense and not that I think this is necessarily bad there are some moments I think more than anything when she was doing like her like like true hip-hop which is a big text text a trademark of, of her career on a song like Zoo Girl or The One I was like, actually, yeah, this is still, like, pretty solid hip-hop. Again, like, the lyrics aren't anything too special, but, like, her flow is, like, still pretty good. But just some of the other songs where, like, these don't do a whole lot for me, honestly. Like, like Marigolds, you have, like, this these background vocals, and Lil Uzi Vert is among mm-hmm. them. Apparently, I couldn't hear him, but he's there, apparently. <laughs> um, but, like, I don't know. It's just... I, I think the blandness kind of sets in a little bit, which is disappointing, because, like, you know, like... She's not a bland artist. So I don't know. Yeah. it. I mean, I think there's definitely some like fun production songs, but even like some of my favorite like sounding songs, like Energy Freak really sounds out. Like MIA's like vocals on that just like don't match. And they seem like kind of off, almost like she like had recorded the vocals and just like, ah, is there a song that I can just put these over? But they don't really feel totally inspired. Even Marigold, which I think is probably one of my favorite tracks off this, like the chorus is when times are different or when times are difficult, we're going to need a miracle. It's like, uh, what? Like, okay, like Mm -hmm. you have in the past had such like inspired and like pretty like critical lyrics of like social commentary. And now you're like talking about how like, oh, we're in a difficult time. So we're just going to need something magical to save us. Like, okay, like, cool. And (laughs) vaccines are the problem right like sorry didn't like did we need to go there but that's kind of been like the like the subtext of like where she's at right now it's and that's the thing she's been geopolitical with her music for years you know like oh, yeah. let's not forget she flips off the camera during her super bowl guest spot back mm-hmm. in the day you know like she, she she's been about it and it just didn't didn't come across this time in the music and like i said maybe that was a good thing given where what she's kind of <laughs> on her mind these days but unfortunately it just comes across as a bit more generic than you'd expect from someone of her caliber with her discography to this point so i had the maa album like listed on my like you know albums to look out for list for a while now uh just because you know it's been a lot long time 2016 and i was like okay maa like that's definitely one to 
pay attention to, right? Like, you know, it was, it was only a few few lists down, uh, lines down for me from like Brianna and Frank. Mm. You know, like it, it was she's a pretty significant artist to be expecting an album yeah. for six years, and ultimately, I think this is a huge letdown. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I was actually thinking, like, the Santa Gold album isn't one that I'm gonna necessarily go back to a lot, but I'd prefer I'd prefer that album over this one for sure. And yeah. Just even, I think Santa Claus as an artist is someone that I find to be a little bit more intriguing. But, um, you know, I hope better days are ahead for MIA because, like, you hear a song like Freedom is a State of Mind Part 2, which we didn't need a part two. You could have just made those one song, in my opinion, especially the first part's like a minute 30 and the other part's like two minutes or three minutes, Mm -hmm. whatever. But that, like, when part two comes in and she's just like screaming, Freedom is a State of Mind, like, I'm like, okay. And you have this, like, insane production about it. I'm like okay this is like cool shit and then it's followed by just like these lyrics like nonsensical lyrics for the most part it's like mm-hmm. ah, there's just so much potential there that she just can't reach for whatever reason right now and I, I just I wonder like who are her who are her collaborators right now like who's working with her beats me Kanye? this this did come out on Island Records you know so she's still on a uh, you know that's a subsidiary of Universal so she's still like in the system it seems um, and it's a new new label for her too after the last album, but yeah, yeah, I don't know because in theory you would think she could kind of fit in to all kinds of things. She was on that random Travis Scott song franchise like two years <laughs> ago, which became a big hit due to tra- the Travis a- aspect of it. She can be a chameleon, I think she's good enough to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully down the line she has, I think, more compelling inspiration for her own work. I just don't know if I want to hear what she has to say moving forward. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Anyways, let's uh, let's move forward to the Saviors of Rock, the 1975. Um, yeah, you know, the last time we talked about them was three years now? Has it been May 2020. Notes on a conditional form, album four. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it feels like forever ago and, and you know, not that long ago, but... Yeah. yeah, I think from what I recall, we were like, yeah, 1975 for like what they are is really enjoyable, like non-offensive, like pop rock music. And like they lean into the 80s sound and they have the very strong brand, but it's like enjoyable a lot of the time. And I think that's highlighted by a song like um, Let Me Know, like, or is that what it's called? Or maybe I'd like you better if you took off your clothes, whatever that mm-hmm. song was called. Uh, um, off the last record, there was... I think a few highlights, such as um, If You're Too Shy, Let Me Know, yeah, most specifically. That was an album that was super long and super bloated and kind of like frustratingly all over the place. But like the best moments of it were like r- some of the best moments that you get from the 1975. And I think that's what made it kind of disappointing a little bit to me because it's like, like you guys are really circling around some really good stuff here, but this album just kind of all over the place, right? And so and- what do you do, Dave? Who do you get do you to help do? you hone your sound? <laughs> yeah, how, how do you trim a track list down the way the 1975 just did? Well, you work with the only man for the job, and that would be Jack <laughs> Antonoff, who was in the room for most of the recording of this. He's not listed as a producer on any of the beats, but he did all of the arranging uh, and did some instru- instrument playing as well. Clearly was a creative uh, collaborator with Maddie and the boys. Jack Antonoff, who would have thought... That's all you needed to do because I think this is the best 1975 album. 
Yeah, I mean, I would agree. Um, I, I thought this was actually pretty great. A few few stinkers, but uh, a really enjoyable album. And um, yeah, this is like also maybe the most uh, <laughs> bleacher sounding um, 1975 album. So it makes sense that Jack Antonoff was all over this. I, I actually didn't realize that he had collaborated. I, just, I listened first and then I like started reading it. And I was like, ah, this all makes a lot of sense. Like <laughs> It sounded just like a Bleachers album for a lot of the parts, but it really worked. And uh, they're they're corny and ridiculous, mm-hmm. but like, man, they can make like a soft rock bop. And uh, I really I really enjoy a few songs, including probably a, a top ten song of the year for me to this point, which would be um, about about you, which was. Mm-hmm. My, my clear favorite from this yeah. I lower just register that's... for maddie performing after you hear his his usual range and then he really brings it brings it down with that one too oh. it definitely jumped out right away and like that that's like a jack antonoff like production like like chef's kiss like everything that he does really well on the albums that we love from him like uh melodrama and lover and and things like mm-hmm. that it's like it, it all just kind of comes like to fruition there and you're like man he still has it sometimes but he's just made so many boring <laughs> albums with with boring artists to this point or not boring but like yeah i don't know made other artists boring lately yeah yeah so it was it was really cool to see them all kind of finding their form on this what were the tracks that stood out to you yeah and i think that's what's so exciting about it too it's like this is the, being funny in a foreign language the fifth 1975 album is the 1975 really for the first time kind of pairing back and like focusing in on what kind of album they're trying to make. And as a result, the album is only 43 minutes, 11 songs. It like feels tighter because it is. And I just thought there were so many tracks that I just really digged because you're just not really distracted by, you know, any like the jarring like production choices this time around where, maddie was like in the writing bag a little bit like this is really like his brand like of these like ridiculous one-liners and funny things or like these weird like rope-a-dope way he rhymes words together like it just sounded and 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 felt so much like the essence of this band and this songwriter and just like the music's just better now and like like i don't know it's just exactly what i wanted so there were a ton of songs that I really digged. Um, just, I think just like the, the through line for me is just a lot of the, a lot of the melodies are just like really tight and like the tempos are really, really fun. And like, and Maddie, like, you know, he's, he's, he's not been one to be afraid to speak his mind. As people know, he is, and he talks about this on this record, I think in a funny way too, about apologizing for some things he might've done or said and referencing his past in funny ways. Like, I just really enjoy him as a presence in music, as a frontman of a band, because I think he's like a really genuinely real and unique personality. He's and it also guy. comes across in the music. Like, mm-hmm. And that, more than anything, that's why I like the band a lot these days. So yeah, I, I dug uh, right off the jump. I loved Happiness. Yeah, Happiness um, is a clear the, bop. The, the melody there and like the guitar is just kind of jamming out. Sounds great. Man, uh, the, the bass for... on that song is so plucky. It's like really exactly. fun. Yeah, right after that, looking for somebody to love. Uh, just super groovy there. My favorite song probably would be the next one, Part of the Band. Just the way like the strings are just kind of like strumming along. I think his his one-liners on that song are super funny. Um, 
and then it kind of has band... this like saxophone outro too which is like super subdued yeah. and cool but like there were moments of saxophone on the last record and they clearly like noticed people like that i certainly did and like you know what let's get more sax on this new one it's like really stood out to oh me. yeah well yeah J- jack antonoff loves the sax like if you listen to his last album it was all over the place uh yeah part of the band his like the way he like sings like talks uh, i i can't quite pinpoint it but it feels so familiar there's almost like like a paul simon feel to it mm. in a sense you know like I, I don't know like i can't quite put it like I'll, you can call me al maybe is the song that it brings to mind for me but yeah i thought that was a great great track I actually i think the, that run happiness looking for somebody to love and part of the band is probably my favorite like run of the album mm-hmm. but i also really like um the second half where we get like wintering oh, yeah. um i think that's a great track just a lot of fun and then Human 2, which is a little little cheesy for me, but I think is also still a strong song. And then obviously leading into About You. Um, I think those three really stood out to me as strong songs as well. And then, you know, there's a couple in the middle I really like, like Oh Caroline's another mm-hmm. really strong track for them. The, the album just totally works. It's it's really a pleasure to listen to. And I really recommend this one with some really like strong headphones, which I mean, you should listen to every album that you really like with with good mm-hmm. headphones, but you can really hear the texturing and the layering in mm-hmm. this. And it's like, you just immediately want to like start dancing and like, just like you're in it. So it's, yeah. it's cool. You know, I've started to like plan my like weekends around like doing my album listening specifically in the car. Because I'm like, you know, I just really want to hear this in the car versus listen to it in, like, at home. Yeah. And, like, I had a really fun time just, like, driving around to this album and, like, pulling out my phone and trying to write stuff down without crashing my car, you know? <laughs> great, 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 great stuff. Yeah, I think Oh Caroline is really fun, too, because it's, like, like Leo DiCaprio meme points, 80s song, we found it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know... <laughs> It would, it would almost be remiss to not talk about I'm in love with you because I think that might be my favorite like chorus on it. And it's so simple, mm-hmm. but just the I'm in love with you. Uh, 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 it's just like, <laughs> oh yeah, let's fucking go. I mean, yeah. the 1975, yeah, they're, they're cheesy, they're corny, they're ridiculous, but they're just so themselves. It's like hard, I think, not to just like enjoy them. And if you just like accept them for being, you know, like this, like, pop rock like soft 80s band that's not mm-hmm. never gonna like they're not the saviors of rock I, like well, we already no. established that that's Greta Van Fleet and uh <laughs> and if you can accept that they're just like this really competent pop rock band at this point I think you can enjoy them but there's so much more than that because it's almost reductive to say like I think they're, so. they're yeah. not Maroon 5 they're they're so much better and so much no more and I think if anything like who even compares in the pop rock mold these days I don't even know because I think like they have such a clear identity and this is an album where they really focus that as we've been saying in a really compelling manner. And that's what makes this one so exciting to me. Um, I'm not really I mean, sure who, who their true peers are right now. I, I think the, the peer is Jack Antonoff, right? It's the features might, might be up there, but they're not, not to the same level. Like, no, 1975 is also quite significantly popular too. Um, yeah. I think wintering is you mentioned is a really good one. The tempo there, the one liners there are so funny too. Like the woman, you are sixty four years old. That's about his mom <laughs> yeah. over something he said. Like that is so funny, and like there's a lot of like great, just great, great moments, man. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy Maddie's uh, humor, 
uh, the way he comes out in his music. And um, even even the, the closer, uh, When We Are Together, the Central Park is SeaWorld for Trees line, like completely nonsense, <laughs> right? But it's also just so funny to hear it from, from him. You know? Yeah, like he can sell it like nobody else. Um, just want to throw this out there just to hear your thoughts. Is is there like closest peer Harry Styles in terms of like sound? No, and like no, they they have way more musical identity than me than Harry. Harry's a yeah. lot better than these guys. Let, let let's give him credit. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe down the line, Harry singular. will go down this road. You could see it, but right now, I would say no way. Man, I mean. If Harry if Harry goes down this road and we actually get like a good Harry album, that's, that'd be great. Right. Imagine. <laughs> Imagine. Who among us? Yeah. Anyways, uh, check out our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify, where I'm sure we'll have at least one 1975 yeah. song on there. But Dave, let's talk about a movie that came out this weekend that we both were able to check out. Triangle of Sadness. Uh, yeah. This is a movie that I think... I think was good, but also feels so familiar to things we've been watching a lot mm-hmm. that I was, it was hard to watch it and not compare it to some of the, the TV peers specifically for me. And I think it, because of that, I found myself feeling like it didn't quite hit the same way. Something like white Lotus did and that made me ding it just a little bit, but did you have the same experience watching this? So I saw, I really enjoyed watching Triangle of Sadness uh, in the theater just because pr- pretty good group in there. And the humor was like really hitting with, with in my theater. Like I was really dying in act two towards the end of the yacht stuff. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it was fun. So like, I think a lot of like the satirical black comedy nature to Triangle of Sadness is definitely familiar. The, the, um, the commentary is largely out in the open and, and easy to grasp and, and maybe obvious, you know, at times. Totally agree. But I honestly just really enjoyed this and um, honestly had a blast watching it um, and just kind of laughing along at, at many of these fools that we were watching on screen. Like, um, yeah, White Lotus vibes for sure. But honestly, it's Ruben Ostlin's thing, you know? Uh, Ruben Ostlin, Swedish director, He's quite prolific, but this is his now second movie in a row to win the Palme d'Or at Cannes after 2017's The Square. He also made Force Majeure a few years before that. This has kind of been his thing of late, which is the lampooning of rich people and the um, yeah, kind of satirizing their lives and, and kind of imbuing his, his, his personal politics and, and thoughts about society into his films. So like, this has definitely been his thing for a while. And whether this is as successful as his other work, you know, perhaps remains to be seen. Uh, depends on the viewer. But yeah, I, I think there's still a lot of merit to it, even if a lot of it is familiar. Yeah, I definitely think it's a fun time. And I definitely think there's some really f- strong performances and some strong commentary. I was, I was really struck by the way that the first act, which explores the relationship of Carl and Yaya, played by uh, Harris Dickinson and Sharibi uh, Dean. Charibi uh, Dean. Dean. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, respectively. Um, and their dynamic is like this beautiful uh, couple who one is an aspiring model, the other one's a very successful model. Um, and uh, they, they kind of talk about like 
gender dynamics and mm-hmm. about yeah. like uh, financial expectations within relationships. And also like, I think just how modern relationships kind of interact in terms of like communication style, which I think is all really interesting when it gets flipped on its head in the third act, right? When they're on the, uh, when they're on the island uh, lampooned and uh, Carl kind of becomes the love interest of, um, is it Abigail? Is that the main person yes uh, yes, yes abigail. abigail and and how like all of these like dynamics are just like flipped on their mm-hmm. head and it's yeah. i think it's really fascinating um to see how he does that and it really hits for me i think some of the like like rich people like lampooning and like they're like eh was a bit on the nose right so it's like the mm-hmm. the guy one of the guys in the boat is rich from creating the hand grenade and i was yeah. like okay like this is it's funny but it's also like very like okay like yeah i, I don't know the, it know, could have been maybe the a un bit. stopped their previous Fire. bestseller the landmine those <laughs> <laughs> <was> pesky fucks <laughs> yeah. um so i think some of that stuff didn't totally hit and also like i feel like woody harrelson is like almost like stunt casting in a sense you know with him like coming out for like what 10 minutes of the movie and then... right but yeah so so as you said there's like these three distinct like named acts right um our introduction to carl and yaya and like this modeling world and some actually i think some pretty fun like satirization of the modeling world too you know like that that first scene where we're introduced yeah. to carl when he's in the room with all the other model uh men like i thought that was like, quite funny too um and then you mentioned the restaurant scene which i think really works and then the second act is when Carl and Yaya go on this like high-end luxury cruise mm-hmm. that they got to go on for free because Yaya is an influencer, but they're they're joined by all these like legitimately like one percent uh, wealthy types, right? And then of course Act Three, you know, spoilers when the hijinks ensue, they're no longer on the yacht; they are on an island. Some of them, anyway, right? These three distinct acts, but then they all serve like three distinct purposes and i think you're right act two is probably the least uh high-minded of the three acts in terms of what it's saying like it's just obviously like rich people suck let's laugh at them and yeah. i totally acknowledge that but i also had a really fun time laughing at them throughout that like especially like once it like things really get out of hand and <laughs> the uh balance of the ship starts to be jeopardized and people are falling over constantly and then they start puking like a, a lot of the body humor i i was dying with and there are people in my theater that just started laughing too and i, I just had a really great time just watching <laughs> these like people i had some disdain for just go through the roughest of times you're right though about woody harrelson i think his like captain of the ship figure is a bit unfocused where it's like that's probably supposed to be the voice piece the, the mouthpiece for Ruben Oslin's politics and views on capitalism versus Marxism. The, the Woody Captain character is like a, a valid like Marxist, right? And it is pretty funny watching him chop it up with the Russian dude, and they both just kind of like espouse these decrees on like politics and society with the uh, microphone, uh, the intercom of the ship, and just everyone else's like, captive audience as the boat almost mm-hmm. flips. Like, that was, like, really funny to me, but it's not actually really communicating, like, a whole lot, like, thematically. Like, you kind of get it there. Yeah. But I was still having a good time with that. But, yeah, I didn't really know there was going to be a third act to that. It's actually really funny. I went to the movie thinking it was 90 minutes long, not two and a half <laughs> hours move. So I was looking at my, like, phone, and I was like, oh, it's about time. 
And then I see Act Three, and they're on the island. I'm like, holy shit, the movie's still going. This is so cool. <laughs> and that one really like took me for a loop. And I think that's perhaps the uh, the best the best group of them all, as you said, when they flip the relationship between Carl and Yaya on its head, and Dolly De Leon really comes into her own in the film as yeah. Abigail. But also, you get to really like laugh at these people too once you realize the the true nature of their new circumstances on this island that you find out at the very end like so yeah i i think it's it's not as uh probably successful in its comment as the square but i still had a really good time because these politics are similar to my own yeah i i did like some of the stuff on the boat with like the rich person who was like the sails were dirty and woody harrison's (laughs) like well this is a motorized boat so we don't have sails (laughs) It's like no, there were sales. Like it was that. I thought that was pretty good. Um, Woody I having def- hamburgers. Like, I don't like hide uh, fine dining. Yeah, I thought that was great. Um, yeah, you know, th- th- there's definitely some funny stuff throughout. I I, I thought this was a, an enjoyable movie. I think it's just so hard because, and going back to my my framing of this was, we've had a lot of TV shows specifically who have been kind of doing this like taking rich people and and powerful people and really like breaking down how terrible they are and Mm. how insensitive they are and i I think it's hard when you've had something like the white lotus which is so successful at it in so many ways um to like then see this and and not think of it but i definitely think this is more humorous to me than the white lotus and uh i think this is is a a fun little romp if we i i guess it is not so little at uh 140 minutes but definitely yeah. enjoyable for sure yep. i agree uh yeah so they just just this just came out after winning the pomodoro con out via neon and tragically this is the last film from charlie dean who like suddenly tragically passed away at the end of august unexpectedly i actually thought she was quite good uh mm-hmm. as yaya i really enjoyed her dynamic with with harris dickinson the Carl yeah. and Yaya relationship was was quite fun, honestly. Like, I agree. Yeah, and like, yeah, like, does the movie do like kind of the obvious thing where it's like, hey, look, she's an influencer. She's taking picture, eating food, but oh, she's not actually eating it in real life. Look at that, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah. Man, like you kind of like know what you what the scene's gonna be before it actually happens. We get the joke, get the comment, fine. But I, I thought they were both really good. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. The two leads definitely were we're strong and overall triangle of sadness i think a movie we would recommend so check that out but dave you're flying solo on tar the new kate blanchett vehicle that just came out i hear it's i hear she's pretty great in it yeah so kate blanchett is superb in tar just say it right now kate blanchett always good never bad people know this but this is definitely up there as one of her best performances and tar i think is a Really fantastic film, really unique movie, highest possible recommendation. Definitely see it. This had a Venice premiere, just started coming out, limited limited release. And it's the first feature film in 16 years from Todd Field. Todd Field's only his third movie, his first since 2006. Of course, Todd Field came up as an actor, was in Eyes Wide Shut, grew very close to Kubrick before Kubrick passed, became a director his first film, Best Picture nominated, screenplay nominated, second film, screenplay nominated. Here we are, his third film. He has like been completely out of the public eye for 16 years. 
We knew he was doing stuff. At one point, he was developing a Daniel Craig Showtime series that apparently he completely wrote and they never made. Alas, he's finally back and actually talking to people again. And he came back to make Tar. And it's it's just so brilliant. And I think what's really cool about this movie is that right off the bat, I think it just throws you in uh, in a really smart way to learning who is this Lydia Tar character played by Kate Blanchett. And you actually see uh, Tar sitting on stage talking to Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker playing himself. And we learn that we're actually at a New Yorker festival event in New York City. And Adam Gopnik just kind of goes over the biography of Lydia Tar, telling us how she's an EGOT. And she's like one of the few people to be a conductor for all the big five famous uh, orchestras in the world. Lydia Tar is like one of the best composers uh, in the world. And currently, uh, where, where Tar starts the film, Lydia is the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic in Germany. And you just, I think, get really thrown in right away to what feels like a completely realized character in world. And it comes across as a biopic, but it's completely fictional. And it's awesome. And then you just kind of, you watch this movie and you then you get into what actually Todd feels actually about with this movie and what 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 like the themes are, and it's a long movie, two hours forty minutes, so it takes a while to get there. But it's not like it doesn't feel long at all. Like this movie really uh, makes you think, quite thought provoking, and you know once the the gears start to shift, once things aren't quite right, and and things start to change in Lydia's life. Uh, it, like I think it just really gets to you. You know, it's a movie broadly about like the art versus the artist and uh, cancel culture and just broadly like narcissism and ego and art and in in life in general and just the way that the story progresses through those themes. You know, when you hear a movie about cancel culture, most people's like you know, they recoil at that thought. Like, we don't want to, no one wants that these days, right? It's a never-ending topic. But this is a movie that's so thoughtful and intelligent about how it tackles something like this. And it also, because it's a longer movie, really puts in the time to establish these real-life themes and and make them make sense with this character and with this narrative. Like, I think everything really works. It, it's just really triumphant film. And yeah, like... <laughs> Like I said, thought-provoking. Like you don't necessarily know how you feel about things uh, by the end because you're spending so much time with this Lydia Tarr character and Kate Blanchett is just so commanding in the role as this very confident, capable, larger-than-life character in our story. And then just seeing these things that happen, changing how you feel about what you've seen, you know, it's all done really well. In, in a supporting role, you have Naomi Merlant from Portrait of Lady on Fire, the French actress. She's as she's uh, Lydia's uh, like assistant character. Smaller roles, you have Mark Strong, and of course the great Julian Glover as well. And then a bunch of other uh, European actors as well. Yeah, uh, highest possible recommendation for me. I think it's a really thought provoking movie. Um, you know, it's not really a mov- movie about music composition. It's not really about music. You know, it's more about the. Uh, more higher minded like societal things um that being said early on you know it's established that lydia is kind of like a protege 
of Bernstein. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, of course, watch Maestro next year with Bradley Cooper about Leonard Bernstein. But yeah, I mean, this is, I think, just a really triumphant, really impressive, unique movie that you need to watch. I definitely can't wait to check it out. Wish I'd had time to get to it, but definitely one that I'm going to prioritize whenever I, I can uh, check it out. Dave doesn't usually say his highest possible recommendation. So that's a, it's a sign of a, a really good movie right there. Dave, we're going to switch from the big screen to the small screen where I know you're going to give She-Hulk your highest recommendation <laughs> to watch as well, right? Third favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe television series. There, I said it. Pretty good. Put, put that Relatively on the speaking. billboard. <laughs> um, yeah, She-Hulk. She-Hulk felt like there was potential for it to be one of the standout Marvel shows because it was really committing to a tone, right? Like it, even from the first episode, um, there was a silliness to it. Um, there was a tongue-in-cheek uh, feel to it. And there was also this, you know, uh, courtroom drama uh, promise that this was not going to turn into, mm-hmm. you know, a CGI fuck fest, as people yeah. like to say. Legal comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And it already is a bit of a CGI fuck fest just by the fact that, um, you know, you cannot actually make Jennifer Walters big and green. So you just need to CGI all the time whenever she is She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. But I think for... All of the criticism about the CGI and all that coming in, I think She-Hulk was actually pretty successful. And uh, I really left liking Tatiana Maslany quite a bit. I think Mm -hmm. she played this role really well. I thought this was actually a really introspective uh, and and reflective movie of where Marvel's at right now in terms of like Mm -hmm. grappling with its identity of, you know, uh, who it was and who it is now and, um, some of it worked, some of it I think wasn't quite as 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 good as other parts, but overall I, I left really satisfied. Give me your like favorite parts of She-Hulk and then let's talk about some of the things we didn't like so much. Yeah, totally. I think I think that's that's really spot on. The reason I have She-Hulk as like my number three after Loki and WandaVision. I think She-Hulk's kinda like clearly for me in like a tier of its own when you're ranking these MCU shows mm-hmm. we've got. And I think, like like you said, it's because of the tone. The tone is not only committed to, but it's good. It works. Like, this is actually, like, I think the Marvel brand done quite well. Where it's mm-hmm. light, it's quippy, it's fun. And yet, because the show is framed more often than not, but of course not always, as this kind of, like, legal comedy, Jessica Walters is a lawyer still, even though she's She-Hulk. That's our framing device because it's framed in something like that is inherently more silly or at least smaller stakes at all times. It just felt like it could be itself, um, which was just kind of this witty, you know, funny, funny stuff. That being said, I think why, why the show kind of transcends a little bit above that is because it's not afraid to ruminate on like women's place in society and how they are treated, things Mm -hmm. like that, you know? Obviously, this the show doesn't always get into that. There are there are episodes where that kind of talk is more prevalent than others. But given the MCU masters of it all, I think it's pretty successful and about as good as Marvel can do at kind of imbuing like more broad, higher level like commentary into one of their stories. 
And I really appreciate that about it. Also, I really couldn't help but be charmed by the way the series ends with that finale. Um, obviously, we know going in that She-Hulk breaks the fourth wall. They started off in the premiere, but that's obviously well-established in the comics that She-Hulk was basically Deadpool before Deadpool. We know that. Mm-hmm. And it's still up and down and inconsistent across the series. But I think there are some great moments, such as the finale, where it's done to it a really amazing effect and just gives She-Hulk a kind of unique identity when thought of against its MCU series peers. So, you know, obviously there's things that are more down than up, but I really enjoyed my time with it. You know, one of the biggest surprises, or, you know, before we even get to that, I think one of my favorite parts of it was the supporting cast, right? And uh, now I can tie this in. One one of the biggest surprises to me was just how much Tim Roth was involved with this mm-hmm. in, I think, three or four episodes in total. And um, I think his turn as Emil uh, Blonsky, Abomination, obviously, I think he's reprising a role from yeah. one of the earlier Hulk movies. Incredible right, Hulk. Remember. He hasn't yeah. done this since 2008. Been a while. I think, uh, I think when like the episode where she goes and she's kind of stuck there because her car gets ruined by one of the guys. Right. I think that's no probably one of, my signal, favorite, all that. Yeah, yeah. one of my favorite episodes of the whole thing, you know, not only in terms of the like mindfulness and like mental health aspect that's brought into it, obviously for me, but um, I think the like way that it takes characters who like bring back the guy from the first episode who tried to like beat her up and like really like allows them to like redeem themselves and like kind of like frame that like, yeah, like people can be shitty, but like that doesn't mean that you have to like always paint them that way. There is a chance for redemption. I think some of those themes really like stood out. And as you move towards the finale, I think that made some of the the themes of Jessica Walters, her downfall, her, you know, return to, uh, I don't know, promise or acceptance in society all feel a little bit more earned. Um, and of course, uh, I'm, I'm kind of going off into the Emil side of things and he's kind of a big character. I really loved Nikki and Pug, man, as her like two sidekicks. Pug mm-hmm. was hilarious, and Nikki, uh, played by Ginger Gonzaga, was just fantastic. I really enjoyed her presence on the show, really brought some levity. Yeah. How'd you like uh, Jamila Jamil as Tatiana, kind of like a influ- influencer, super powered character? Definitely an intriguing concept, I guess. And, you know, I think the show probably could have done something a bit more interesting with that than what they ended up doing. I, I felt like she was completely wasted, honestly. And, you know, even in the, even in the finale, you kind of get all these characters wrapped up, but Titania isn't really touched on at all. Uh, other than, you know, she pops in and Jennifer Walters is like, and Titania's here. And then she's like, okay, now we have to go and like talk mm-hmm. to Kevin and like, just, uh, yeah, it just kind of forgotten. So I, I feel like they never really figured that aspect out of the show. But see, the way the show ends, though, with being like, actually, most of the plot doesn't matter. To me, that's amazing. Yes. There are like 30 Marvel movies. We're on like show six or seven at this point. It's fine. Do something funny and different. Completely agree. Pretty pretty great, you know, especially because you have the ability to do this with the She-Hulk fourth wall breaking, you know, like Mm -hmm. because like no one's like sitting on the edge of their seat waiting to see the Titanius story resolve. It doesn't matter. You know, so do something that's way better than that could the Titania story could have ever been, which was this. You know, I think like it's the just stuff like with Kevin, it... like this this open like mocking of of Marvel writers' room and like Feige like 
being the overlord of all things and like Kevin saying like, oh, but we have to bring in uh, Ruffalo because we were introduced blah, blah, blah to set up so-and-so. And then yeah. you just have Walters be like, nah, save it for the movie. Like, that's so great. Like, she's just yeah. literally, <laughs> it's just so funny, you know? No, I, I thought I thought that was great. I, I think I just almost feel sad that it was Jamila Jamil in this role, right? Yeah. Just because she's so talented. Like, I just wanted to see her have a little bit more to do. I would I would have actually almost liked her to be the, uh, like, opposing lawyer who the who she befriends i forgot her name um uh not daredevil uh, right oh no no no. well obviously we should talk about that real quick but um no the the other lawyer in the office who she's like rivals with and then defends her in the right. um, oh that's right yeah i forgot against me. titania um but yeah anyways I, I i think that's really not that big of a uh dent against the success of the show tell me about your thoughts on daredevil uh being in this yeah, so he's in the last two episodes. Obviously, on its service makes sense. Matt Murdock is a lawyer, so easy tie in there. But, you know, Charlie Cox definitely felt like how he used to be on the Marvel Netflix Daredevil series. Didn't seem any different to me. And I actually really liked that dynamic that those two had together. I, the fact that they, had, they they hooked up, I think, is amazing. That was really fun. And seeing yep. Daredevil walking <laughs> home, doing the walk classic one-night stand walk when, with his shoes off hilarious you know that sounds great i'm i'm not would not be shocked if we see she hulk pop up in that daredevil series coming out in 2024 yeah. given they announced that that's an 18 episode series surely they have room for that um yeah i thought i thought he was pretty fun um i also thought wong uh was pretty <laughs> fun as well early on just because benedict wong can really do like the humor of his character well mm-hmm. and those were really funny episodes, man. And Wong was great. And actually having him kind of interface with Emil as well later on, I thought was, was, was quite fun. So like the, the Marvel like tie-ins and connections insignificant, but actually done pretty well and enjoyable in this series. It didn't feel like the MCU was breathing down She-Hulk's neck. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was really funny to me when, you know, uh, Tatiana as Jennifer Walters is like Wong's in this episode again it's almost like a cheat code or however she said it like who doesn't enjoy Wong being here also I just want to clean this up uh, I was the the person I was thinking of was Mallory who was played by Renee uh, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Elise Goldsberry. so yep. uh, who's fantastic so just shout yeah. out to her um, yeah I think overall just want to see more of this sort of stuff from Marvel what's the next Marvel show is it the uh, the teenage one the, the next show is until early next year, which would be Secret Evasion. Mm. So we really have no indication of where She-Hulk will be next. Probably Daredevil, honestly. You know, they kind of really quickly introduce uh, Bruce Banner's son, Hulk's son, Scar. Scar. Um, I would not be shocked if a She-Hulk and Scar film is in the works. Of course, as we know, the Hulk, Incredible Hulk, Bruce Banner Hulk film rights are murky with Universal's involvement still. We don't know when that expires exactly, but I wonder if She-Hulk and Scar is a way to skirt that for Marvel Studios. I'm not sure. Who knows? Um, also, I think just just one kind of note I had about this um, this the series was Tatiana Maslany having uh, romance issues and dating <laughs> troubles. Completely un- uncredible. Obviously, she's a I beautiful mean... woman. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's like a critique you can make for any show. Uh, yep. Basically, they're always beautiful people. So, yeah, but I mean, 
I, I, I liked when she was in like the clothes that were like five times her size when she like unhulked and she's just wearing like men's XXXXL like yeah. clothes. I just always loved seeing that. That was funny. Yeah, the, the show was a delight, you know, and you don't get to say that a lot about Marvel shows. So I'm happy for them. Um, Dave, I think we should move on though to the the show we, we've been waiting to talk about. We text a little bit bit before. Um uh we, we talked this week. The Rings of Power wrapped up, man. I mean, eight episode first season. We need now to know who Sauron was, and it's not who we thought. Um <laughs> who among us is yeah. it Sauron, right? Yeah. <laughs> we all have a little Sauron in us, right? Um Yeah, I mean maybe we'll just start with the simple question. Do you think the Rings of Power season one was successful? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I love this show, man. (laughs) I thought this was a great, great fun. And I really am intrigued for what's to come. I'm even more excited for season two, given what we've got. Are there hiccups? Are there less effective things in the Rings of Power season one? Yes, definitely. It's not perfect. But I think largely where it gets to, what it does accomplish is successful. And I think a great place to leave off a season and start a new season. And yeah, I just really enjoyed being in the world of middle earth. Once again, being with many characters, I know some, I don't know. Uh, Yeah. I I just had a, had a great time and really can't wait for the next one. Apparently actually, I was mistaken last time around. They really weren't that deep into season two. They've only just started production earlier this year, or sorry, earlier this month in the UK, actually, not New Zealand right now. So I don't know if we're going to get this show back next year. It might not be till 2024, but it'll be eagerly anticipated by me because I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I thought the show was was a lot of fun as well. I I really I think enjoyed the way that the characters grew on me. I think that there was part of me that around like episode like three or four was like you know there hasn't been a lot of like movement here like i felt like there wasn't like significant movement in the story we spent a lot of time with durin with galadriel kind of like working out their friendship you know you have you have uh uh I'm, for, I'm forgetting his name the guy who ends up being sauron hellbrand uh, hellbrand sorry and yeah, now i'm just thinking about him as sauron and galadriel and like them kind of you know figuring out their relationship yep. and in Numenor being, for a long time yeah in Numenor as prisoners and I'm like you know like where is this really all going but then I feel like it really pays off in the second half of the season you know you get like the moment between um uh Elrond and Durin when uh Elrond is like you know I I didn't realize I was put on this mission but for this reason but this is why I was put on this mission and I need you to like help me save the the elves like the yeah. our entire race and like that moment between them is you're just like on the edge of your seat like is, is he actually going to go for this or is he going to like turn him away and like mm-hmm. I feel like that was so powerful and strong I feel like the payoff that leads up to episode six when everything comes together and the battle of middle earth there is just completely yep. like maybe one Great. of the best episodes of tv of the year in my opinion just an amazing uh, cat like the the way that they shot that and like edited it all together yeah. set piece just, after set piece in the southlands so good um and then i i really like how we got to the rings you know and probably mm-hmm. my my least favorite storyline which is the harfoots i think had some of the like strongest emotional impact on me at the end of the season so i was yeah. just like 
overall found it to be a really successful season. I do agree with some of the, the critiques about like some of the writing, especially around like making sense of Halbrand's actions if he knows he's Sauron or is like aware of it. You know, I think that there's some Sauron like, is a deceiver, questions. baby. Yeah, you know, I, I, I agree. Mean, maybe... It could have been communicated, I think, a little bit better. It, it, it's a bit of a challenge. For me, I'm willing to let it slide and I think see season two kind of color that in a little bit more. Um, because, yeah, the way the way a lot of it's framed is you're putting a lot of onus on Galadriel, which doesn't seem right in terms of our understanding of these two characters, right? So I agree. It's, um, it is a weaker, weaker, weaker piece of the season, but I'm willing to let it go. Um, yeah, I, I think that's another piece about this too, is like the rings of power. Yes. Second age, you know, before Lord of the Rings, but like, ultimately we know everything that's going to happen. We know the fate of anyone we've met before. This is all known. Elendil, Isildur, Galadriel, Durin, Elrond. We know these people. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you probably noticed the Southlands is going to become Mordor. You know what? That big mountain in the back, that's probably Mount Doom. Shocker, right? <laughs> it's like, I'm kind of happy we got past a lot of these, like, mysteries or, like, surprises. Because ultimately, they really can't be surprises. And I don't think Lord of the Rings needs to be told as a story in a way that's mystery boxy. You know, Tolkien storytelling, fantasy storytelling, is not like uh, Game of Thrones. It's much more earnest and I think of a different tone, right? And the Harfoots slash Hobbits are a huge factor in that, right? If we can honestly just not worry about plot so much and actually just be with the characters, I think that's where this show can really shine because we know what's going to happen to everyone anyway. So why bother trying to like go down these like what ifs, you know, with plot, right? Like, oh, yes, in Numenor. We know that they have the Palantir, the Seeing Stone. We know that's what was discovered under the blanket. Like, there's there's no surprise with any of this, nor does there need to be. I don't need any surprise at all. I just want to be in the world and be with the characters, some of which I know, you know? Like, so I, I, I'm hopeful for the, the, you know, the future of the series with Sauron's identity more in the open. The Stranger confirmed at least to be an Astari of some kind. He is one of the wizards. Most people yeah, think it's Gandalf. Doesn't have Gandalf? to be. It seems like he's Gandalf. He doesn't have to be Gandalf. He could be. I mentioned in our review of the first two episodes the blue wizard characters, which are largely undefined in Tolkien. Maybe he's one of those guys because that can just be a new character for all intents and purposes. I don't know, uh, but yeah, he he's one of the wizards for sure. Mm -hmm. That 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 is confirmed. You know, um, yeah. No sense hiding stuff, I think, with this show. Let's just let's just get get into it, you know, and and have yeah. a good time. No, yeah, and I I think a very like um, satisfying season, in my opinion. I mean, I, like like we talked about some of the questions. I think maybe we'll answer themselves as we move forward. But I think getting a lot of the answers before the end of the first season is really exciting, and and I think you kind of see where. Uh, this is going. I'm really excited to see where the Harfoots with, uh, you know, the, the stranger. I'm, I think that's going to be a really fun storyline to follow. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm interested to, to see what actually happens with the rings next, 
you know, and, and how that's all going to play out with the, the dwarves. I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic politically. And then we had the the king of Numenor. I forgot his name who dies at the end of yes. this episode. And I think there's going to be obviously some, some changes come with that. So some really interesting plot lines to be following moving forward. Right. And I think that's actually one of the most intriguing ones too, is like, you can look up what happens to Numenor if you don't already know, mm-hmm. but that's about all we do know is more or less what happens. We don't know how it gets there. That'll be fun to spend time with. Yeah. Um, the Harfoots, you know, I, I think the, the Harfoots story was a bit up and down for me in season mm-hmm. one, but I still need the Harfoots in the show because those figures, the Hobbits, the Harfoots are central to Tolkien in terms of yeah. little unimposing people being in this larger fantasy world. Like you said, the everyone matters are there. Like, the, yeah, exactly. Like, huge important component. What happens with Nori and the Stranger? Happy to see it happen. You know, that'll be mm-hmm. great. Um, another mystery that got out of the way. Not a mystery to most, I'm sure. But like, in Kaza's Doom, they found the Mithril, but they dug too deep. Obviously, we know they dug too deep. If you watch the Fellowship of the Ring, the Balrog is called Durin's Bane. <laughs> you know what happens. Mm-hmm. But we love Durin. He's yep. so good. Him and Elrond's relationship is amazing. Robert Arameo is amazing yeah. as Elrond. I want to see that constantly. Let's go, man. They are great. And uh, that, that'll that be great. Obviously, we know the plot down the line, but I don't care about that. It's just because the characters are so good, you know? Um, How'd you feel about um, Galadriel throughout the season? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, in a sense, she was a bit of a, open book at this time, you know, young Galadriel, really not anything to find. So mm-hmm. didn't really know what to expect. And she's definitely has like a steely resolve, a, a focused uh, direction purpose in her life, you know? And I don't want to call her one note. I think Morphe Clark is really good as, as Galadriel, but like, I think seeing Galadriel and I think some new situations in season two will probably make the character uh, even stronger on the series. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think ultimately she does kind of get like tied up in a lot of like the Numenor stuff where she doesn't get to do a whole lot or at least not her herself, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm definitely open to seeing more, more, more new things for Galadriel in the future. And I'm sure we'll get that. Of course, she's the co-lead with Elrond, really, really the, 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 the number one lead of the series. I think the thing that for me most disappointed me about the whole series which you, and you mentioned that's something that's intriguing to follow, right? The rings, right? Right. We kind of whipped right into Celebrimbor and Sauron getting into ring making at the end there. I wanted to see Sauron in a region for so much longer than we ended up getting. Because mm-hmm. that's a huge thing, right? About like Sauron kind of like deceptively influencing the elves and Celebrimbor into making the rings in the first place, right? And I would love to see more of that. We didn't really get a whole lot of it. Before you know it, Sauron's already out of Eregion, and it's over. Um, Had you yeah. figured out that he was Sauron before he revealed it? As Well, so a lot of people had been theorizing this for weeks and weeks, and there were like some like dialogue hints. I wasn't really interested in trying to figure it out, but also I was like, you know what? Maybe that's too easy. Maybe he's going to be the Witch King or a Nazgul or who knows, or he's somebody new. I don't know. I wasn't really thinking about it too much, but... As soon as I saw Halbrand kind of like pacing in the ring lab, talking to Caleb Brimbor, I'm like, up, oh, yep, confirmed. It's him. <laughs> <laughs> no more.
more now. Yeah. Especially because <laughs> right along that time, you have these like cultist characters, which I think are pretty weak villains. You have them being like, Stranger, you are Sauron, be our leader, you know? It's like, okay, well, clearly they're doing this because he's not Sauron. Yeah, like, at that point, about, I was like, okay, uh, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty uh, clear. Adar as an Aruk? Yeah. 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 I, I actually thought, found him to be a pretty intriguing character, Adar. Um, I, I think he was played a very like menacing villain. Um, mm-hmm. I, Looks cool. I mean, and I, I really, you know, watching his interaction with Halbrand, you know, when when they capture him, and thinking about the fact that Halbrand, you know, knocks him off the horse or knocks the horse down, so he falls down. And they stop him from getting the mm-hmm. um, top of the scepter or whatever it is. Yep, the, um, the dark elf figure here. Yeah, I, I thought was. Um, pretty like interesting to think about in retrospect you know how he's like do you remember me like do you know who i am like i thought that was like a really fascinating scene to think about in retrospect and um i wonder if they're going to now obviously team up i mean this seems like there's Mm -hmm. some sort of movement i think like the one thing i'm a little like sad about is like what is there really for us to follow with sauron now that he's just kind of like yeah i'm bad now you know like he's he he just kind of sidelined Great question. So I think ultimately we're going to see him like be able to make the one ring. I'm curious how long that happens. And I'm just kind of curious, like how long does it take until we're in like kind of the open conflict, like second age end game, you know, Mm -hmm. if you watch the fellowship of the ring, the very first scene is that extended flashback narrated by Galadriel. That's what we are building to on this series. And I'm just curious, how long does it take us to get there? Right. Cause you know, there'll be some inciting incidents. What happens to Numenor, uh, the Balrog, in Moria and then Sauron just starting to go on his attack. Like we, we know the key beats that haven't happened yet, but in the meantime, I'll be really excited to see like Elendil and Isildur found Gondor, you know, that hasn't happened yet. That'll be cool. You know, but yeah, in terms of Sauron, like apart from uh, making, making the ring, it's again, kind of an open book. So it's up to the showrunners to find stuff to do. And I wonder how big of a character he will be. Will we see Sauron as much as we saw Halbrand this season? Right. I don't know. Also kind of funny that Sauron's just hot. You know, like, <laughs> you, you never really know what he looks like. And now you're just like, oh, he's just a really hot guy. Like, hey, cool. He was a deceiver, man. You know, he can <laughs> switch up his look. That was his yeah. thing. Um, <laughs> I would say Rings of Power, pretty successful uh, for first season. I think it did everything you want. I'm, I'm investing in a lot of these characters and uh excited yeah. for whenever we get season two any last thoughts for you though yeah no i totally agree with about agree about that you know there was so much hype and build up and lead time to the series and we know about the price tags and the expectations mm-hmm. put on it by amazon and like we said you know there are flaws there are things to improve on but i think it's definitely a successful show and you know i mean in terms of the fantasy realm, it's this and this and Thrones. You know, I think I think most people are going to start giving up in terms of making the next Thrones because there is just there is no room. We have House of the Dragon and Rings of Power, and that's enough. I think. I completely agree, and um, we'll be talking about Thrones next week as well as some other big things. What do we got, Dave? Oh yeah, just a few hitters. House of the Dragon, season one finale. Can't wait. Uh, big music, Arctic Monkeys come back four yeah. years taylor swift less than four years but she's back once again one year <laughs> uh carly ray jepson as well shout out her uh tough week to release but we'll be talking about you <laughs> and then uh on the movie front i'll be talking about 
Park Chan-wook's first film in a while, Decision to Leave. And then, of course, we have Ticket to Paradise, a George Clooney, Julia Roberts rom-com, NBD. And, of course, (laughs) the DC hierarchy is changing (laughs) due to Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Black Adam. Let's fucking go. Well, we got a stack to week, so hit that subscribe on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Go to at uh, NostalgiaPod on Twitter and follow the link tree to listen to the podcast anyway you want to there. And go to uh, Spotify, follow our Nostalgia Best of 2022 play- playlist on there. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.